And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Shays Bippy Mod Podcast. I am Thomas Murphy, of course, with my good friend Mike Diabate, and we're we're going to get into into what some people are telling me it is not a mob movie, and and I I find that kind of insulting. Um, I find that kind of perplexing. I find that kind of you know it pisses me off. This is organized crime, whether you like it or not. Yet you can call it a heist movie, but behind it all is organized crime, and that's what we we talk about here on the Shays Bippy Mod Podcast. And and uh, it, let's just jump right into it with, with my co-host Mike. Mike, how you doing, bud? I'm doing well, Murph. <laughs> so after a few weeks off, we have taken a few weeks off. We t- decided to jump into the world of Quentin Tarantino, and um and this this is without a doubt my favorite Tarantino flick um going back as 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 far as I is I can remember you know there are so many so many great directors that that started out their career in the same fashion and and we did say that it was it was a a a mob flick and an organized crime movie, but it is also a heist movie. You know, Woody Allen, uh, Take the Money and Run, uh, Michael Mann's great uh, debut, Thief, one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, and even Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket, and uh, Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects. Um, this is this is a great way for a director to get into, uh, get his name out there, get into the, the lexicon of Hollywood, is to make the the heist movie and um i think tarantino just knocked it out of the park with this um tarantino uh embraces la uh in this movie in a way only he could do in a way that say woody allen who i just mentioned um does with new york and it's it's just a beautiful film from from beginning to end uh i going back i uh I looked at some old reviews of this movie, and they haven't really they they don't do it justice, do they? But, but. no, I, I completely agree with you, Murph. And uh, you know, getting back into the foray of, of what we've been doing here with the Shave Bippy Mob Pod, uh, I think Reservoir Dogs is a great movie to kind of get back into the fray with because mm-hmm. I agree with you. I do feel that it is an organized crime movie. It doesn't necessarily follow the mob quote unquote genre, but the heist genre is so much a part of what organized crime movies are about. And you mentioned some great ones earlier on when you were, you know, running down your list. Um, and those are movies that we're going to tackle on this podcast simply because, mm-hmm. well, it's our podcast. We can do whatever we want, but also, <laughs> um, it's also a situation where it does relate to, uh, to the genre. And I don't think that the, uh, uh, I think it, it, it's mind blowing that this movie was made in, in 1992 because it has such a timeless feel to it. It really is a, I think a very timeless movie, whether you watch it today, whether you watch it two years from now, uh, whether you watched it back when it was made. Whenever you happen to watch this movie, it has that timeless quality to it where it can essentially be dropped into any time period and still be relevant. And that's one of the brilliant things about Tarantino. I think that his uh, his casting was spot on in this movie. Uh, the cast was phenomenal, and we'll run that down in a little bit when we start to actually break down the movie uh, into uh, uh, into its uh, you know intricate stages. But I, I 
I can't say enough good about uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs and just, to me, one of the uh, the unsung classics, I think, of its generation. I agree. I agree. Um, and, and like I said, it didn't when the reviews of this film first came out you know there there were there were people that compared it to seinfeld it's a, it's a movie about nothing um it's a, <laughs> it's it's people called it claustrophobic i didn't find it claustrophobic at all um they they talked about the um how can we say it uh the the departures from it chrono um chronology um which we have done in here in the past on our, our podcast um the the way pulp fiction is is structured uh a series of of flashbacks in boxes telling each character's story um but but the flashbacks never felt like flashbacks in this movie do you agree yeah i completely totally agree and and i think that it does it lends itself to Excellent writing, excellent directing, and just great ensemble cast acting. I think that that, to me, is really what I take away from this film. And I think that, you know, the cutting back and forth of the uh, the, uh, the flashbacks, the nature of the way it does, it does kind of have a Seinfeld feeling to it, where it's like it's almost about nothing, but it comes together so well that it mm -hmm. really becomes not just about nothing, it's about everything. <laughs> and really, the way it's tied together, I think, is, is brilliantly done. It's a movie that really makes you think a lot. And I think very far ahead of its time, you find a lot of movies now try to, I find a lot of movies now try to copy a genre like this and be oh, sure. able to really kind of think outside the box, uh, make you go in a different direction than you normally thought you were going to when you first put the movie in or you first watched it in the theater. Uh, it makes you, you know, kind of go in a different direction. And I think a lot of that started with a film like Reservoir Dogs. So you know, it's, this is definitely one that I've I've been looking forward to, uh, you know, to, to chronicling uh, here on the show. And uh, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a fun one today, my friend. All right, man. Let's get into it then. All right. So uh, for those of you that uh, have either have seen the movie or have not, uh, there will be spoilers here. So if you haven't <laughs> seen the movie, you may want to see it and then press pause on our on our uh, on our uh, podcast and then. Go back and listen to it after you've seen the movie. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, the film opens uh, with, I think, a, a brilliant uh, visual uh, with eight men eating breakfast at a diner. Six of them are wearing matching black suits and ties. And that really, I think, is one of the more iconic images of Reservoir yeah. Dogs. It's what those thin ties. Really, I think, an image. Exactly. How 90s. Thin black yep. ties. Absolutely. It just it looks, you know, very – there's just there's something about the look to that scene and look to that um you know those characters that really is the indelible part of reservoir dogs and uh obviously they're all using aliases uh there is uh mr blonde who is uh michael madsen uh there's mr blue who was played by eddie bunker uh mm -hmm. mr brown who is played by director quentin tarantino uh mr orange who's played by tim roth and last but not least mr pink who is played by steve buscemi and just allow me just a couple of minutes to go into how big a fan I am of Steve Buscemi and what oh, he's able to do. He's, he's to me, 
there are versatile actors that can pretty much do anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of them. We talked about one in our last podcast, uh, in uh, the Get Shorty podcast, which was Gene Hackman, who I find to be one of the more versatile actors of his generation. He can pretty much do anything. Yep. Buscemi, to me, I call these guys chameleon-type actors because not only are they versatile and can they do things, they can essentially insert themselves into any genre they'd like, and they really knock it out of the park with anything that they do, whether it be a zany comedy. You've seen him take so many you know, off-the-wall parts and Adam Sandler comedies and whatnot. Then you've seen him do movies like this, like Reservoir Dogs, or unforgettable roles that he's had either in The Sopranos or in, uh, in Boardwalk Empire. I mean, you've seen him just be able to reinvent himself, and, um, and he's believable in every role that he plays, right. and I think there's a real to him that just is unparalleled. So uh, an interesting part of uh, uh, the Mr. Pink role before we get into, uh, you know, the, the plot, um, a little interesting synopsis here on Mr. Pink. When he first came in to read for the part of Mr. Pink, Mr. Pink was originally going to be played by Tarantino instead of the Mr. Brown character. He was going to play Mr. Pink. And he basically told Buscemi, and he says, I've got myself penciled in for this role, so you're going to have to change my mind in this. No sweat audition wow and and that's exactly what steve buscemi did he came in he knocked it out of the park tarantino said after that he says i crossed my name off and i wrote his name in and i didn't look back and that goes to show you just how brilliant he was and really the cast as a whole was brilliant i'm a a buscemi fan so i really wanted to just kind of get me too the the the, the uh, consummate the ultimate character actor's character actor that's that's yeah, you know the, the best way that I could describe Steve. Definitely, no question about it. And we'll get into that in a little bit. And also, of course, I can't forget one of the more indelible characters of the show, uh, Mr. White, who is played by the legendary Harvey Keitel, um, and uh, just a, an amazing, amazing cast. So based on that, just on its own. You take a look at these characters, and they're they're phenomenal. They really and truly are. Um, but they're also joined by other members of the cast and uh, other, uh, you know, characters of this, this, this great movie, uh, Lawrence Tierney, uh, you know, playing uh, L.A. gangster Joe Cabot. And yep. his son, nice guy Eddie, who's played by Chris Penn, who really, I think, gives such an underrated performance yeah. in this. Uh, the late, great Chris Penn, you know, unfortunately. I'm pointing no that gun at my but, daddy. Uh, Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but they're all standing, they're all sitting around having breakfast in this diner. And, you know, Tarantino, of course, kicks it off in his comparative analysis on Madonna's Like a Virgin, which uh, is a scene that's really played. I think one of the more common replayed scenes on YouTube in this movie is yep. his analysis of what Like a Virgin uh, means. And uh, again, you know, to give a little uh, background to uh, to this, Tarantino is brilliant in this scene. This scene actually inspired Madonna herself to send Tarantino a copy of her sex book after this movie was made with the inscription, Quentin, it's not about dick, it's about love. <laughs> and Aww. he signed it, Madonna. And to this day, Tarantino said that it's still one of his prized possessions. He absolutely has that. He says he holds that in is in a higher regard as any type of award or anything he's ever uh, he's ever done. Uh, that let him know that he really had arrived and really was on the map. So that's an interesting, uh, you know, little uh, little tidbit about uh, there you um, go. about that. But 
again, you know, moving right along, you know, Mr. Brown discusses that comparative analysis on Madonna's Like a Virgin. And, you know, nice guy Eddie comes on and says, oh, I've been listening to, you know, local rock, you know, with uh, the K-Billy super sounds of the 70s. And it's hosted by the DJ voice of Stephen Wright, which really is mm-hmm. a great, great, you know, voice overture. And uh, if anybody has the uh, the soundtrack to this movie, I don't know if any of our listeners do, but if they do have that soundtrack, uh, Kate Billy uh, and uh, the Super Sounds of the 70s, Stephen Wright introduces every song on the soundtrack, and it's pretty cool the way he does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you don't have this soundtrack and you're a fan of 70s music, I absolutely recommend picking this up. Uh, one of the one of the best soundtracks, I think, of uh, uh, the 90s in terms of movies. And a very, again, I think a very underrated. Um, and they talk about, you know, talking about movies that haven't, excuse me, talking about songs that haven't been played in years. And mm-hmm. Joe has what I think you might want to refer to as a senior moment, <laughs> and it involves an old address book, um, and it involves Mr. White. And White grabs the book away from Joe, refuses to give it back to Joe until he stops talking endlessly about it, and really just, I think, kind of sets the tone for the entire movie. And this was a great scene, um, and it really was you know, something that, uh, that, that I liked. And you see the back and forth between these two characters. Um, and then when it comes time for Joe to pay the bill for the meal, he tells everyone to throw in a dollar for the tip. And again, my good buddy Steve Buscemi, as Mr. Pink, explains that he does not tip. And he defends I don't believe in tipping. his anti-tipping policy until Joe forces him to continue with the group. So, uh, Murph, in terms of this scene, this opening scene, what really stood out for you? Like I said, to me, it was the back and forth with the book and the anti-tipping scene uh, were two of my favorites, even though uh, there's that, you know, that dissertation from you know Tarantino on the Madonna sex book those two scenes were really I think the the, the defining moment of this this whole opening of, uh, of the movie Reservoir Dogs what stood out to you yeah the, just the back and forth banter that that set the, the tone for where they were LA uh, when when the movie was happening um, it, it, that it was at the time in the present or just you know a tad bit into the future um, and uh, the the thing you you brought up the tipping, I thought that was fantastic. I also like the 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 talk about um about the television shows, uh, uh the fact that uh oh God, what was it? I didn't put it in my notes and I should have um the TV shows that were going on during the time uh it, it was. It went from from space to space, and it showed you everybody that was in the film and who they actually were in that that direct opening, where where they grew up, what they grew up loving, what they remembered. Um, you know, they think, oh God, they they were uh, arguing. I I I keep thinking Jackie Brown. Um, no, Honey. Um, oh God, what was the show? What was the show? I, I'm killing I'm killing the mood here, and I'm sorry about it, people, but I can't I didn't put it in my notes, and I did. But no, yeah, the, the tipping etiquette was was a fantastic. Like, it, it showed that it showed that Joe was was the leader here when when he picked up the check and he told everybody to throw in the tip. You knew right then that he was the leader of this gang. That he was the he right. was he was the man, and everybody else was gonna get in line, whether they liked it or not. 
and, and you get into it later when when Steve gets upset. Why why do I have to be Mr. Pink? Well, you're Mr. Pink because I said you're Mr. Pink, and that's the way. Yeah. It is. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was a fantastic way to open the open the movie, and then we get the cut to the the iconic um, them walking through the parking lot, right? Yeah, absolutely, and they do, and that really is an iconic scene, and probably one of the more indelible, uh, you know, marks when you see these guys walking through, you know, the matching suits, the matching ties. Uh, it just, it's such a beautiful shot, and Tarantino really deserves a lot of credit for that type of visual, um, you know, indelibility. I think that uh, that this movie offers so many of. You take a look at so many of these scenes, and they're iconic. You could play them in your head. You can see them over and over again. And again, it has a timeless feel to it. It has a timeless um, uh, structure to it. Its cinematography really was uh, was also phenomenal in this movie as well. And I think just just so um, so fitting for the plot line and how this movie was put together. And you know, with that, with the iconic scene of them walking through the uh, uh, to the parking lot, the opening credits roll, which you know is something yep. that we see a lot more of in today's movies, but you didn't see this back in the late '80s, early '90s, where the opening credits would roll after a, a very lengthy beginning scene. You don't see that that much anymore. There were some directors that were doing it, but a lot of them weren't running the uh, the credit. They were running the credits early on, very at, at the beginning of the uh, uh, the scene. This is one of those movies that decided to break it up a little bit. But when they do that, the action cuts uh, to Mr. White driving with one hand, speeding yep. down, and in the back seat, he's got Mr. Orange laying in the back seat. He's been shot in the abdomen, bleeding and screaming in pain. Uh, the, uh, the the great Tim Roth doing, uh, you know, his uh, his uh, you know his interpretation of Mr. Orange, and um, you know they arrive at, at an abandoned warehouse, and it's the robbers or the heisters rendezvous point. <laughs> and you know, Orange is begging Mr. White, he's begging Kaitel to take him to an emergency room, but he refuses. He's saying it takes a long time to die from an abdominal gunshot wound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, it's it really I think it sets the tone for these characters and what was truly important to them and what their you know their main focus was. And I think that really did set the tone very, very well with that. Um you know, and you just see, you know, Mr. White leave Mr. Orange there on the floor, and then Mr. Pink appears, you know, and, uh, you know, you yep. see him angrily suggesting that their robbery of the jeweler orchestrated by Joe Cabot uh, was a police setup. And it was indicated by the rapid response of the police to the alarm. And White looks at him and really, I think, agrees with him. And they, you know, they try to get their story straight, and they realize that this could be something that could affect them down the line and something that could, you know, really be a problem. And they do a little bit of foreshadowing here and they kind of just look at each other and try to get their stories straight. So that really, I think, set uh, uh, as well uh, the tone and continues to set the tone because we're about to get into a lot of the intercutting that we talked about here last, uh, just when we opened the show, um, about the intercutting and, uh, you know, some of the flashbacks that we saw um, in this scene. Like I said, one of the things that stood out to me was, you know, <laughs> Mr. White telling, you know, oh, it takes a long time for you to die from an abdominal gunshot wound. <laughs> uh, that to me, you know, that not only makes you chuckle, but it also, I think, sets the tone for the characters. Was that one of the things right. that stood out to you as well? It, it really did. It, Mr. White is a professional thief. He, he's a professional yeah. criminal. He's, he's a man who's spent um, years in prison 
Uh, this is not the first time that he has ever seen somebody shot in the gut. Um, and you can see from the, from the moment they're in the car that, that he knows that this is bad, but he also knows how to keep his cool and to keep, um, uh, uh, Mr. Orange, uh, Tim Roth, you know, calm and under control. He, he, he's, he's keeping him in a state that, that is going to, you know, keep him alive and keep him from bleeding out. And under, so he understands because out of, out of everybody in this film, these two are, you know, even though everybody was brought together, nobody knows anybody else, which was Joe Cabot's um, premise for this, which is, you know, Tarantino's premise, you know, uh, a bunch of gangsters who don't know each other. And, um, and that's the way this is, this is going to go down. That's the best way that this heist is going to go off. And that's why he comes up with these, these names for everybody. Nobody knows everybody else's name. Um, and Mr. White is, is the main, even though, even though Mr. Pink is, is also a professional, he know Mr. White is, is the guy who's, um, whose brain is a little bit bigger, whose, whose thought process is a little bit deeper, um, before he wants to go out and start shooting everybody that may walk through that door because they might've been the guys that set him up. Let's take a breath. Let's see what's going on here before we, you know, before we do anything that we're going to be sorry for later. And, uh, let's get nice guy Eddie on the phone and see what Joe has to do and get this kid to a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think you put that, you know, so well in terms of uh, the relationship between these characters and Mr. White being a professional thief and just someone that is, you know, so used to seeing his He's probably seen it all and done it all in his time. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the at the uh, at the contrast in that where you look at a guy like Mr. Orange, who's being played by Tim Roth, who's just completely horrified and just so in such pain. And that's, you know, all that he yeah. can, you know, muster up and. Mr. White's just being very kind of almost like ambivalent about it. Just, you know, like, Hey, it is what it is. It's gotta, it's gotta be done. Uh, very Belichickian, uh, you know, if you, uh, if, if you want to uh, <laughs> add to a, uh, go. to a thought process, the ends justifying the means Machiavellian, Belichickian, any type of, you know, uh, you know, adjective that you want to throw in that shows that uh, someone will always do what's good for the outcome rather than just, uh, you know, the fleeting moment of what needs to, uh, uh to happen. And, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, what this scene does now is it sets up the uh, the flashback nature of Reservoir Dogs, which really, right. I think, is the indelible, uh, you know, part of how this movie is remembered and what uh, this movie brings to the table. And, and really, it, I, think I believe everybody's... it works. It works yeah, better but... in this film than in any other Tarantino movie. I, I really I do. Completely agree. Uh, it, 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 I do. And, you know, it, it became a signature yeah. of his in his early films. Well, you know, even in his yeah. later films. But when you discuss his earlier films to, with, with some of the other ones, I mean, even the Kill Bills and um, and things like it, it's it, it, it was effortless. You never you were never waiting to get back to the warehouse. You were never saying, okay, right. let's get back to the warehouse. Whatever scene he cut to was completely enthralling and, and you were in on it, whether it was, um, you know, Mr. Orange in, in the coffee shop with, uh, with, uh, is it holiday or how, Hall how Halliday, the, his, yeah. yep. his, um, 
his police, I don't want to say chief, but or handler, but um, his lieutenant, uh, played by Randy Brooks. Uh, great job yep. there by Randy. Um, and it, 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 it was it was the flow never stopped, no matter where Tarantino took the movie. And, and he did all this in 90 minutes. You know this this movie he got you in and out in in just over ninety minutes. It's 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 what a movie's supposed to be, uh, Avengers Endgame with your three hours and freaking whatever minutes <laughs> three hours coming out. Yeah, the, there's no way in hell I'm sitting in a movie theater for three hours. No way. Um, and he did it in ninety minutes. And it, it, it like I said, you were never wondering. Okay, let's get back to the uh the warehouse and see what's happening there it, it, you were enthralled by any story that he was telling um and and, and there were there were there were many many stories there's there's uh joe cabot's story a nice guy eddie's story um mr white i they didn't really get into mr blue too much and mr brown too much because those characters ceased to be Actually, ceased to be before they got before anyone yeah, got back really to do. the warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, you know those characters are pretty much yeah. They're, they're, and it, it was gone. beautiful the way Tarantino did yeah. that. You know, it, we're, we're going to focus on the guys that are still here in the warehouse, and we'll get to to Mr. Blonde's entrance in a little while. But we we yeah. we, we we saw his backstory. So I've been in Mr. Pink's backstory. It, it, it was beautiful, and, and the the flow of it is something that you don't really see in other people's uh, in in other Tarantino films. No, it's true, and you really you you don't see that. And I think the fact that this was in and out in ninety minutes, like you said, but it, you it see it, but you don't you, you don't you, you don't feel it in the same way. Exactly, is and it's yeah, is, is is the you point know, I tried to make. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you made that perfectly. And the the thing about doing cutaways and doing flashbacks and flashback scenes and whatnot, I know that has become, you know, Tarantino's signature. In this film especially, they don't just tell they don't just advance the story, they help tell the story. And there's right. a big difference between that. Sometimes cutaway scenes can help to advance the story, they can help to do a little bit more, uh, they can help to tell some of the backstory, but they don't really do a whole lot to advance the plot line. And in these you hit the nail right on the head. I think that they not only enhance the story, they not only tell the story, but they bring it forward. They give it a new di- uh, they give it a new dimension that uh, a flashback doesn't necessarily have. They could have very easily written in dialogue that could have filled in some of these scenes, but the way they actually right. show you what happened and they advance the plot line that way, I thought was brilliant. And in one of the first flashbacks, I think I think the first actual flashback of the movie is the one where Mr. S- uh, Mr. Pink is escaping from the jewelry store and he's got the yep. diamonds and he's running down the street. He's being chased by three or four cops and Mr. Pink's hit by a car. And then when he's hit by the car, he drags the woman driver, he opens fire on the policeman, he hits one or two of them before he gets in the car and he drives away. And uh, another interesting tidbit about that scene is the budget in Tarantino's movie did not have enough to be able to shut down uh, any type of the, the, uh, the freeway for any uh, any long period of time. Oh, so no kidding. 
in this scene, what they had to do was they had to wait for green lights in order to be able to to film this scene, uh, simply because they just didn't have enough in the budget to shut down uh, the uh, the street for any any type of. Uh, so they were really under the gun, literally, mm-hmm. <laughs> when it came to shooting this scene, and they did it. And it was, really it looks seamless when you see the final product. But right, uh, you know, to know that they had to film it under that type of duress and under that type of pressure makes it even uh, even more. They made amazing. this film in under and, thirty days. Yeah. In under 30, 30 days. That's, that's under amazing. 30 <laughs> days. That's how little yeah. cash he had to work with. You you had to get it yeah. in, get it done, and get it in the can in under 30 days. It, it was brilliant. I didn't I didn't know that. That was fantastic. Yeah, and and that's and that's one thing that uh, you know, and that really speaks to you know the the level of of just the dedication that Tarantino put into this film, and you know, and the and the, the cast, and just everybody being able to come together and work together for a common goal on such a little budget, limited time, and they were able to make it. And today, it's considered a masterpiece. Yeah. Um and you know, it really is. But. Uh, the scene cuts away, so there is that cutaway, and then that brings you back to the present, and it brings you back to, you know, to the uh, to the warehouse, and a little bit about what happened uh, with the characters that you saw in the beginning of the movie, and. Mr. White reveals to Mr. Pink that Mr. Brown had been shot and killed by the police during the getaway, so Tarantino mm-hmm. is done. <laughs> he is he is now no longer with us, and the whereabouts of Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue are both unknown at this point, right. and it, they agree now to stay put for the time being. So, at this time, Eddie Bunker and Michael Madsen are unaccounted for, and we know that Mr. Brown is now no longer with us. Tarantino is done. So now we're starting to get into the backstories, and now is when a lot of the the previous cutaways and the previous um, you know information is going to be told via flashback. And we show the first of the character development flashbacks uh, being shown uh, toward Mr. White. And you see Mr. White meeting with Joe Cabot. And he's at Joe's office where he offers Mr. White, where Joe Cabot offers Mr. White, who we now find out that his name is Larry Dimmick. Um, He's he's offering him a job in his upcoming heist in a few months. And Mr. White takes a look at it, agrees, and he hints at – a long-time friendship with Joe Cabot. So there's an established friendship. Yep. There's an established relationship there. And it also helps to explain early on in the movie when he he's the only one that really is able to grab that book away from him and tell him, I'm not doing anything until you, <laughs> until you shut up about this. You know, it really does. And it kind of, it gives you that context because as much as Joe looks like he's in control, there is one guy that can kind of be his lieutenant and stand up to him a little bit. Right. Uh, someone that'll the give field him general. what he needs to. Exactly. So it does show this this flashback. Um, I thought this really flushed out uh, the relationship between Cabot and uh, and, and Keitel's character and Dimmick very very nicely. Uh, it's one of my one of more of my favorite scenes of the movie. Not really a very heralded scene, but I thought it was no. very very well done. And I thought there were two, uh, you know, great. I think between Tierney and Keitel, I thought they really played this scene well together off of one another. Uh, really like an old type of buddy type love-hate relationship that these two had. And I think this mm-hmm. really flushed it out and told the story very well. Yeah, I did. It, it showed that these, these two had a long-established friendship, that uh, that Joe knew what he was getting in Mr. White when he brought him in, and he was probably the first person to be brought into this. He, he probably sat down with Nice Guy Eddie, his son, and said, all right, we have this. Let's put together the crew. We know the people that we're going to um, 
that we're going to need for this, it, with the exception of one, and um, who is Mr. Orange, who nobody knows. Joe doesn't know. Nice guy. Eddie doesn't know. Nobody knows beforehand. And that's why I'm wondering why, you know, we're, we'll get to that probably. And um, But but no, it, it, it shows that Joe knows how to put together a crew and he knows who should be the quarterback of that crew when he sends them out to get this job done. It's his job, like we see in so many other, you know, like we see in, um, in uh, uh, so many different uh, films that there's there's one man who sets it all up one man that puts it into play and then another man that that is going to take it to fruition who the for who for lack of a better word the thing knows is going to be able to go out there and, and be um the uh the real leader on the street yeah, absolutely, and and I think that that's exactly what uh, you know. Uh, that's that's exactly the uh, the point, and exactly what uh, you know Tarantino was looking for um, in uh, in doing that and establishing these characters and giving you the background. And I think that scene did that quite nicely. Um, with the uh, the flashback comes another cut back to the present, and again, I think a scene like the one that we that you had just seen. Uh, with the uh, the back and forth between Cabot and between White, really, I think, gave you that ability to move the plot line forward. And now what we're doing is we're coming back in. We see that Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, is, you know, unconscious and he's being attended to. And, you know, they're, they're going back and forth now and they're discussing the actions of Mr. Blonde, uh, played by Michael Madsen. Yeah. And they're talking about how psychotic he acted during the heist and he murdered civilians, and you know, after the alarm had been triggered. And he just basically took this in a direction that they never, ever wanted to do that. And White is really, I think, very angered about Cabot's decision to bring Mr. Blonde in, saying that, you know, he's a violent individual and, you know, and, and really, you know, and it really kind of lends it to the thought that this could possibly have been a setup. And they still, you know, are discussing that. And Pink reveals to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to White that he's, you know, hidden the diamonds in a secure location. Mm -hmm. Um but then they decide to start arguing, and then they really start arguing about whether or not they should take Orange to the hospital when he's un, you know, he's unconscious. And White then reveals something that I think really gets to the heart of why he was so reticent to to do that, because he had revealed to Mr. Orange that his real first name was Larry. And I think that there's maybe a little bit of hesitation <laughs> on his part uh, to uh, to find out his true identity and to do that. So there is a little bit of a back and forth there. At this point, now, Mr. Blonde has been kind of keeping an eye on these guys within the shadows, and now we see him appear for the first time since the opening scene. Right. And I think this is this is really really brilliant, and Madden, some of the finest work that he puts in in this movie, I think, is really in this scene where he comes in and he uh, um, he's being really just completely chewed out by White for everything that he did. And Blonde is just sitting there and he, and Madsen just plays this so well. And he's very calm, very demure, and just defends his actions and saying that you know I want he's a sociopath. I want the jewelers. I want not don't touch the alarm, <laughs> and yep. you know, and and essentially he's just basically defending his actions, saying, you know what, yeah, maybe I lost it in there, but I lost it in there for good for good reason, and yeah. I don't feel that I did anything wrong, and that's when he lets them know that nobody is to leave 
this point because nice guy Eddie is on his way. Um, and once everybody hears that, then all of a sudden you see everyone start to calm down and everybody yep. just accepts what's going on. And Blonde has that calming effect on, uh, on everybody. And for someone that was, you know, being railroaded for being so bombastic, his presence almost is like a calming effect on everybody. Um, he then takes everyone out to the car, opens up the trunk and reveals a hostage police officer named Marvin Nash who's played by Kurt Waltz. And he looks to be a hostage that was taken uh, as a way for Blonde to escape the jewelry store. And as we get into Mr. Blonde's uh, background, which, you know, is, is coming within the next scene, um, a little bit of background, Murph, a little bit of your impression on Michael Madsen in this film. Uh, I think this sets the table quite nicely for the scenes that we're about to break down, where, uh, you know, Blonde goes into his uh, his background in the movie. Mm. I think um, Madsen plays the, the, the consummate um, – I, I just had the sociopath – somebody that can justify any action that he feels that he needs to make. He has no qualms whatsoever about killing everybody in that jewelry store and anybody that he had to, because that's what he had to do to survive. Uh, and he, he sits there and calmly sucks on his soda that he stopped somewhere to get on the way back <laughs> with a cop in the, in the trunk of the car that, that he had and explains to people, um, I really don't care what you think. I've been doing this for a very long time. Joe brought me in here, and he knew who I was, and he knew what I would do. And like you said, I told these people, don't trip the alarm. And one of them did. And once one of them went down, it didn't matter how many others went down. So he was just going to take out every single um, witness that could put him there and put him behind bars for the rest of his life or put a needle in. Well, it's California. I don't think they had the death penalty, uh, but put him behind back behind bars for the rest of his life. And that, that gets into, you know, his backs backstory, which we're just going to about to talk about when he and nice guy, Eddie and Joe are talking back in Joe, Joe's office, the next flashback. Yeah, absolutely. And then really you see, Mr. Blonde's background, and you can see a little bit about what makes him the character that he truly is. Mm -hmm. And the first scene that you see that's a flashback is Mr. Blonde meeting with Joe Cabot and nice guy Eddie, and it really reveals that Blonde has been brought into this simply because he's a friend of nice guy Eddie. And that's really where, uh, you know, Blonde comes into into play and the reason why he was probably recruited um, into this because Nice Guy Eddie knew he would have the perfect temperament to be able to do whatever is necessary. We talked about, you know, um, we talked about Belichicki and, uh, you know, being Mr. White. I think Machiavellian is a little bit more. Um, yeah. I think it's a little bit more apropos for, uh, Michael Madsen's yeah. character. I think it's, you know, whereas he'll do whatever is necessary where, you know, white may be just like, okay, it is what it is. I just, I know what I need to do. My job is about the heist um, where, you know, blonde is basically just, well, I'll do whatever the hell I have to do, you know, regardless. Yep. Of and I'm going to enjoy myself doing it. 
Absolutely, and uh, you mentioned the uh, the sipping on the soda or buying the soda when he uh, when, when he stopped off. Uh, Tarantino has often said that people talk about symbolism uh, with uh, uh, with doing that about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald buying a Coke after shooting Kennedy, um, mm. and Tarantino said that didn't enter his his thought process when he was when, when they were doing this. Uh, he realizes that it it really did have maybe subconsciously it kind of slipped in, but uh, he says he'd like to be able to take credit for it, but it wasn't something that he really uh, had set out to. Uh, to do, but it is a very right. appropriate, uh, you know, I think commentary on people that, you know, just they again, they're sociopaths. They don't have yep. any type of conscience with, uh, with in terms of what they do. It's just okay. Yep, I did it, and that's it. And you know, I'm living in the moment, and in that moment, he was thirsty, and that's what he wanted. But uh, yeah, we also get a reveal of who Mr. Blonde is. And his name is interesting, and a name that if you've never seen the movie before and you're just listening to this to find out, it's a name you might recognize from another Tarantino movie. Blonde's last name is Vega, and he is, uh, Blonde is Vic Vega. Uh, you might remember uh, Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. that was brilliantly played by John Travolta, and we're going to chronicle that movie, folks, uh, you know, shortly. Yeah. But uh, Vic Vega is, um, is is Mr. Blonde. That's That's his you know, alter ego and that's who, well, not necessarily alter ego. His alter ego is Mr. Blonde, but that's who he really is. Um, and he's the guy that served years in prison for armed robbery. Um, you know, he never gave up Joe Cabot and right. you know, he never, you know, ratted him out, uh, which would have given him a lighter sentence. So you have to figure that, you know, Joe and Eddie respected that kind of <laughs> loyalty. And that he was a stand up uh, guy. Yeah. Exactly. You know, he wouldn't, he didn't rat on his friends. Well, we'll get into that. We'll get into another movie that, that uses that <laughs> several, several times. Uh, but I think they're trying to arrange that job that's going to appease Vic and trying to, you know, get him, you know, to be Back able to, to pull a job like that. Yeah. With, with the parole officer and everything. And, you know, and, and, you know, they don't want, to make any type of waves for Vic. They want him to be able to do this job. That's something that's not going to raise a lot of red flags. And, you know, and that's something where I think Eddie then suggests that Juan joins the crew that they're putting together for the jewel heist. And you see Madsen enthusiastically accept that because he knows the value of what could be there and the diamonds and the money that he could make on this. Uh, He's all in for it. And uh, I think that, really kind of sets the table for uh for the uh for the rest of uh, the movie and then we cut back to the the present day and we cut back to um you know Mr. White, Mr. Pink and Mr. Blonde and they obviously they know that there's been the policeman in the trunk by now they're uh they're beating them pretty good <laughs> and uh they're demanding that they reveal who the rat is um and uh you know officer Nash is sitting there and he's saying that he doesn't know and the beating continues until nice guy Eddie arrives, and he's really not in a nice mood at this point. He's, no. he's pretty he's, he's pretty angry and pretty upset. And, um, you know, the, the first, you know, uh, how do I put this? The first target of their wrath, I guess is the best way for me to put it, uh, is the crew itself. And he just really just you know, berates them over, you know, all the carnage that they've caused and the incompetent display at the heist. And, you know, and, and he really tells them that beating Nash is not going to get them closer to anything. You kind of figure, right. they almost figure that Eddie's going to come in and really kind of almost like applaud them for, for beating the officer and trying to get the confession out of him. But Eddie is basically not. It really shows that he he's more, he's more than, than, than Big Joe's son. 
you know, walking exactly. around in a tracksuit, you know, that he, he's, yep. he's the, the heir apparent that, that he has yep. the brains to put things like this together. And that, you know, beating the hell out of this street cop is not going to get you anything. All he did was show up to work today. Okay. Right. That's it. That's all he knows. That's exactly. all he's doing. This isn't, you know, p- police commissioner Gordon. This is Marvin fucking yep. Nash. <laughs> exactly. Right. And it's not going to do. Yeah, exactly. And it's not going to just do lost our G rating. Uh, not, yep, not that anything that Tarantino has should have a G rating, but you know, there you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're breaking down a Tarantino movie, how the hell can you, you know, that's you it. keep it G rated. It's awesome. That's it. No, you can't do but, that, man. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and he does. And, you know, and, all of a sudden, nice guy Eddie now becomes the field general, if you want to, if, if you say. He yep. becomes the ranking officer on, yep. on, on site. And no he tells both Pink and White to come with him, and they're going to get the stolen diamonds. And they got to dispose of the hijacked vehicles, obviously. They've got to hide the evidence and get what yep. they came to get. And he orders Blonde to stay with Nash and the dying orange. And I think it's almost a little bit of disgust that you see you're almost and i love the way tarantino set this up because he's setting up the friendship between vega and eddie nash and he's mm-hmm. excuse me and, uh, <laughs> and, and nice guy and eddie, nice guy eddie yeah yeah he's setting up the uh, um the friendship between vega and nice guy eddie and you're almost expecting him to come in and really just you know rally around his buddy and it's almost the opposite when he comes in it's almost like well all right yeah i gotta take these two guys with me to come get him yeah you you stay here with them and I think you see a maybe a disappointment in the way that everything was was handled. At least that's my interpretation of how that mm-hmm. uh, that went. And that was an interesting you know scene. That was an interesting type of uh, of dynamic that you see between the two characters and how they uh, uh, they're able to uh, to come in and work together. But Blonde stays and he questions Officer Nash one more time. You see that kind of go back and yep. forth a little bit. And Nash states that he's been a uh, been a cop for about eight months and he's you know, he has no knowledge of, of the setup. And, you know, he tells Blonde, please, you know, let me go. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do, you know, anything at, at that point. And, you know, after yeah. the after they leave, then you see another dynamic <laughs> of Vic Vega, <laughs> yeah. Michael Madsen's character. And just, you know, you start peeling back the layers of this character. Yeah. And really, I think the I, I think he's the onion of this uh, uh, this cast where you just you see, you know, just when you think you start to get a little bit of knowledge as to why he is the way he is. Then he comes in and he confesses to him that I'm really a sadist and a psychopath and I enjoy torture yep. and I just I could care less what you're going to say and what you know and what you don't. Mm-hmm. And at that point, then one of my favorite scenes in the movie is where he turns on the radio and Steeler's Wheel is playing and in the middle with you. And he just starts dancing to this song. Yep. And really, I think that, you know, it's just, it's so brilliant in the way Tarantino sets this up. People look at it, and this is one of those scenes where people like have looked at it and said, well, this is the scene where everything kind of comes off the rails, and it just doesn't make any sense. And it actually, it does, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect people sense. People are so complex. They're so complex. There's no black and white decent. I remember watching an interview with Jack Lemmon one time who said that he played his characters in Save the Tiger and in um, Glengarry Glen Ross and in the Days of Wine and Roses. And he said these were decent men that did indecent things. Mm. And you could you could essentially you know relay that to maybe some of the other characters in the movie. 
Not Vic Vega. Vic Vega is no. pretty much an indecent man that likes to do indecent things. Right. And sometimes there are. You know, I mean, you take a look at uh, and Murph. I know I'm probably going to anger you when I mention the Dark Knight, but when they say, you know, with the uh, with with the, uh, Heath Ledger and his character, and he said Michael Caine does deliver a great line where he said, "Some people just like to watch the world burn." I think right. that's very appropriate to a Vic Vega right here. I think that that character and this scene really flushes that out really really well uh it does just the the psychosis and the uh and the the just you know no rationale you know essentially to uh to what he was doing and i think that i think it does it 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 does put uh this character in, in brilliant perspective Right. What what Tarantino did with this scene was what I really loved was the fact that he didn't cut away to go with Nice Guy Eddie, Mr. White and Mr. Pink to get rid of the cars. There there was there was no let's see what's happening here. They already he know the audience should know that when the three of them are coming back and they're in a car together, they're all screaming about what Mr. Blonde had done in that in the um in the jewel store, it's, it's gone more into the, he, he, he took these guys and executed them, which is what, what they said in, in the, the warehouse, bang, bang, bang. It was, it was just, it was beautiful, but they didn't cut away to that because we should know that's already going on. But nice guy, Eddie knows what went on. He knows who he left that kid there with. Um, and Mr. Blonde is, this is where Tarantino shows us what Mr. White and Mr. Pink and, you know, Mr. Orange had already seen. Um, we, we heard them say it, but to see what kind of a man he really is, like you said, pull away another layer of that onion and show it to the, the audience was brilliant. And what I didn't like was when, um, in the reviews when they were talking about how violent Tarantino's movies, this, this scene actually wasn't that violent, even though, you know, comparatively speaking to now when, um, when he was torturing him, I actually, it, it panned away to a, to a brick wall when Mr. Blonde was doing his, his most, um, evil of things when he was cutting off Marvin Nash's ear. You didn't see that. Yeah. Uh, it was panned away to a wall. Exactly. And yep. you brought up him, right? You you brought up the point of 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 blonde dancing to Steeler's wheels, and when in the middle of the torture, he's like, you know, I remember something in the trunk of the car, and he goes mm-hmm. and he, he he starts to walk out into the parking lot, and I love this. I love the fact that you hear Steeler's wheels, and then he opens the door, and steps yep. out, and the soundtrack fades out and you hear what's going on in LA while he's in this, this little, um, abandoned, uh, uh, warehouse to this police officer. And what you hear going on outside are people going to work. You hear children playing in their backyards, you know, a few houses away, birds chirping, and there's a torture going on right there. It's like the the dirty underbelly that nobody sees that happens every, that could happen every single day. And he goes to the trunk and and he gets the, he gets the tank of gas. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a, a gas can in the, in the back of the car and he walks back in. And as soon as he walks back in, the soundtrack comes back up 
the door closes, everything that's happening outside is outside, and you and you you hear stuck in the middle with you again. And then he goes yep. on to and, you know do what he's doing. Exactly. That's what I love. And that, yeah, it really is. And that, that is a great, great point and a great scene. Uh because it does. It takes you out It's my of favorite scene in the movie. Like it does. It puts you into it it puts you right into um uh you know the, the the inner workings of LA and what's happening yeah. and it takes you into the day, just the daily grind, I guess the inner workings is probably a poor choice of words. It takes you into nope. the daily grind of LA. It's just whatever is happening outside is happening outside. And the sadistic, you know, execution, if you will, is about mm-hmm. to happen indoors. And that's where the, the Steelers wheel song is there. And it's just, that's, and it brings you right back when he does open the door, but he does have the can of gas and he's, he douses Officer Nash in the, in the, uh, in the gasoline. And mm-hmm. just the small trail of the remaining gasoline in front of him. You know, just the, even that type of symbolism and that type yeah. of camera work, uh, you know, really. He's not going to get too far so away brilliant. from this. He's exactly. not. Exactly. He, he, he's going to be right there. He's not going to stand 30 feet away and make sure he's going to stand right there and enjoy this with every exactly. fiber of he's his existence. Watch this guy immersed Burn. to his eyeballs in flames and just grasp for everything. And he is right there ready to just, you know, if he had a bag of popcorn, he'd be sitting there chomping on it and ready to do yep. it. Um, but the, the gods of the movie had something completely different in mind. And all of a sudden, just as he's about to light the gasoline, there are several shots that rang out and he's felled by them. And you look and you see that Mr. Orange played by Tim Roth, had suddenly woken up, and he's the one that shot Blonde several times to stop him from burning Officer Nash. And with Blonde now dead, spoilers, sorry, folks, but the the Mm -hmm. shots do kill. (laughs) They do kill Michael Madsen's character. Vic Vega is dead. And Mr. Orange and Officer Nash are now the only two that are in the warehouse. And Mr. Orange reveals that he is a police detective named Freddie Neuendyke. (laughs) And he... and Nash actually comes back with him and says, I know that because I met you a couple of months earlier. And, you know, he shows them that he had resisted the the beating and the torture. So he wouldn't reveal Orange's true identity. So at that kid that was been on the force for six months. Absolutely. And sometimes we forget who the good guys are in movies like it's this true. we get you know we really do we really do the the, yeah. the the police are the good guys and that's who you're supposed to be yeah. rooting for exactly <laughs> this movie points that out really well yeah and it's it's true it's like the the villains have such teeth and they have such you know depth to their character that you almost find yourself gravitating toward these characters they have the, the cool lines and they have the cool you know uh, the the uh, the the real the memorable scenes that people look at and that's what they remember but that's a great point in this is that you see guys like Nash who really are you know the the true quote unquote good guys and that's when Orange reveals to Nash that a massive police force is in position several blocks away they're waiting to move in when Joe Cabot's going to arrive and that's when you start to get into a cutback of how Mr. Orange got to this level, how he became uh, a part of this crew and how everything, um, you know, uh, comes down. And this is a little bit of a lengthier flashback, and it really details Orange's involvement in a deep cover police operation to capture Joe Cabot. And Orange, who is, you know, Freddie, obviously, 
he's rehearsing his he's they show him rehearsing his cover with his handler and you mentioned Randy Brooks earlier uh Holdaway is the guy's name and he's you know getting into character for his first meeting with Joe and he fabricates this commode story <laughs> and i think that uh it ends up being a completely fabricated flashback but it is a um uh, it is a, a story that helps to push right. out orange's character the little, a little details bit. while he's telling exactly about being in the men's room with a with a you know, bag of pot and you know and then you know there were you know the, the county sheriffs the german shepherd he explains all all this going on uh what were some of the things that stood out to you about uh about this scene because this scene kind of lets you see mr orange or freddie in a completely different light than we had seen him up until this point right it it, it goes back to what i'm saying about about the good guys the, the these are the good guys and and this is what it yep. takes to to break up a gang like Joe Cap, everybody knows that that Joe Cap is is the um, is one of the uh, masterminds behind so many crimes in L.A. and and the L.A. Police Department is is finally going to try to get somebody in there with him. And this these are the types of things that you're going to have to know and do if you're going to want people to believe in you not believe that you are a criminal but to believe in you holiday explains to him that you know you, you have to tell little stories about past crimes that you've done and what you were in jail for and it's the, these little nuances that you are going to have to remember and going to have to make it believable and you're going to have to put these in there to make things believable and the only way that they're going to believe it is if you believe it and you're going to have to say it over and over again it really shows the fact that tim roth is 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 new to this um area of of police work he he might have busted a few guys for selling drugs on the streets and things like that but this is this is his move into um what you would consider in law enforcement the big time this is this is no longer um you know just being serpico this is this is something else they, now now you you've been brought up into the french connection um type of police work um and they do it brilliantly and once again you know an, another cut you know they you show they show him the two of these guys meeting in different places this is something that's going on you know not over a period of of days but over a period of weeks yeah definitely and uh and you know the cutaways here uh some of the more uh you know brilliant uh you know dialogue in the movie is revealed in some of these scenes where you know orange meets eddie and white and pink and they go on a drive and they discuss their favorite movie soundtracks and they discuss the yep. career movies and you know there's a lot you really see how orange was able to ingratiate himself into this into this world and really i think the commode story really just you know it kind of really brought them in uh you know with uh with what they uh kind of made him a part of of the group you know he right. was affable he was you know entertaining and they they liked that and he kind of became you know someone that they knew that they could have good uh banter back and forth with joe cabot does warn them about that though in one of the cutaway scenes where um you know he meets with the with all the members of the of the gang and he tells them you know you guys joke back and forth with each other too much you know you're not taking this ice seriously and you know he gives them aliases that are going to be used and yep. he makes sure that 
you know, that this is what's going to happen. And it's funny that you mentioned that earlier on when we were discussing this about Buscemi. Why am I Mr. Pink? Well, you're Mr. Pink because you're Mr. Pink. So, you know, <laughs> Joe really sets the tone. Like, yep. don't forget who's in charge here, guys. You know, you're bringing you together that's because it. you all bring something to the table. But I'm the straw that stirs the drink. I'm the puppet master. I'm the guy that's going to tell you the way it is, um, you know, for lack of a better term. So, you know, you really see that, um, you know, Joe puts that type of, you know, that type of blanket over everything that's happening. Like I'm the boss here. I'm still the guy this all goes through. And I think also you really start to see some of the reveal of the relationship between orange and white between, um, you know, Harvey Keitel's character and Tim Roth's character. And you really see some of that flushed out. And early on, it looked like there was, you know, a lot of ambivalence toward that. That actually kind of, chooses to go in a little bit of a different direction and obviously in the climax which we'll get to in just a little bit but uh, you really start to see that there uh, it develops a friendship there between orange and between white between rock and right. Uh that really uh, you know when they when they drive to the jewelry store and they discuss their roles in the robbery you start to see some of that camaraderie develop between the two of them which is going to be very relevant uh you know very quickly because the plot line is advancing and things are you know are are going you know in a uh in a very very quick uh you know manner in terms of being able to tell the story and how this uh this all wraps up but i thought that was actually really a a very poignant uh, part of the movie and uh that that dynamic between orange and white, I think was really, really great. Right. It, it really was. And, and this is, this is where, uh, Joe screwed up was putting these two so closely together and they, they, they formed this bond and they formed this friendship. And, um, Mr. White cared about somebody else in the gang and that wasn't supposed to happen. And that's what I think the, the, you know, the only thing, I mean, I, I, I still believe that Keitel would have figured out that Mr. Orange was a cop or was the cop long before he did if that, if the things we had just talked about, the ride in the car, the talking about, um, the talking about the movies with Pam Greer, Christy Love, that was it. Christy Love. They were yes. they were talking yep. about, you know, it was Pam Greer, right. Christy Love on TV, or was was it? No, Pam Greer was Christy Love in the movie. It was somebody else on TV. That's it. And, right. and they became friends. And this this yep. really um, wove Mr. Orange into the group because he was the real outsider. He was the guy that Joe didn't know, that nobody really knew that. You know, he had right. never worked with before and nobody, you know, took a look at that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's that is, you know, something if you want to talk about fatal flaws. And I think, you know, anytime you break down a movie or you break down anything that's literary or anything like that, you always look for fatal character flaws. And I think you you put that perfectly. And that was mm-hmm. Joe's fatal character flaws, putting these two guys together and showing right. uh, the, uh, the, the camaraderie between those two characters and really if you're doing your job as a, as a as a field general as someone that is an orchestrator and a puppet master you have to know the personalities of everybody that works for you and who's going to be able to work together in terms of that maybe it's something he saw maybe it's something he didn't uh but mm-hmm. i think that is is really really an interesting point there um 
when Thanks. You I know, like to make two away show. from Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and you take a look at uh, um, you know the uh, the uh, the scenes when they cut away a little bit from white and orange. Uh, you take a look at the robbery getaway, and you finally find out how you know Brown was shot in the head and dies mm-hmm. while he's while they're driving the escape car with orange and white. Um, and you see you know those two uh, you know characters, and then how that ends up becoming the, the means for them to get to the uh, uh, the rendezvous point. Um, you know, you find out how Orange was indeed shot in the stomach by the female driver of the car that uh, Ian White was stealing. And Orange reflectively, you know, just basically on reflex, you know, shoots back and he you right. know, kills the woman after she shoots him. But that's essentially how he ended up with the gunshot wound and how you see that. And at that moment, all of a sudden now, you see the movie come back into the present and really set up the climax and set up everything that is going to happen, and it brings you back into the present. Now you know most of the backstory that you need to know about these characters, and now you're ready to set the climax up. So when you see the present, Eddie, White, and Pink, they return to the warehouse, and they find Blonde dead. (laughs) And Orange, of course, is there, and he's telling them that, you know, Blonde was going to kill Marvin, he was going to kill, you know, he was going to kill Nash, he was going to kill me, and he was going to kill the rest of the gang so he could take the diamonds all for himself. Right. So Eddie doesn't seem like he has too much of a problem believing this, even though you really believe that these two guys are friends. Yeah. Eddie reveals to everybody that, you know, Blonde's backstory and that he was a close friend of his and a loyal soldiers of his father. And, you know, Orange, you know, to, tries to defend himself at this point, you know, because obviously, even though he doesn't he's have trying to justify leaving that, he's still exactly, he's still, them. you know, ticked off that, you know, somebody that he was that close to is now lying dead right before him. So Orange is trying to defend himself and Eddie's just getting angrier. And, you know, he just, you know, he just snaps and, shoots Nash three times and it does, it does kill him. And, you know, you, it's Nash is one of those guys where you were kind of rooting for him to be one of the last men standing uh, because of what he stood for and because of everything that he had to go through. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, wasn't within the parameters of Quentin Tarantino to have him survive. So he is shot by Eddie. Who's really in a rage more or less uh, in, I, I wouldn't say retaliation, just probably in, yeah, in response to uh, the fact that his friend is now lying dead before him and someone had to pay that price. And rather than do it to Orange himself, he just rears back and he shoots Nash three times. It, it was a very powerful scene that um, that that brings the entire movie to uh, a head and what's going to happen in, in the next moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what? once that happens, Joe comes back and he now arrives and he mm-hmm. informs the group that Mr. Blue has been killed. And he is ready to inform everyone that Orange is an informant. And he pretty much has enough circumstantial evidence to be able yep. to say with any degree of accuracy that he's the one that, that set this all up. Sold you all out. Set up. Exactly. And surprisingly, and not really surprisingly, but you start to see this set up in the in the cutaways that we saw. Um, 
where Mr. White comes to Orange's defense and right. basically tells him that, no, he's loyal. He's he's not the guy you think he is. I, I have complete confidence in him. And, you know, this is this is a guy that uh, you Sitting don't here holding his about. Gut, exactly. Sitting here holding his guts in. You're absolutely right. Very, very good. You know, that's, that, that's a great hit. It was a great yeah. line to determine what, uh, what happened. And you see that maybe White is not as... Belichickian, as we thought, maybe he's not as unfeeling. There's definitely a bond here between these yep. two. Uh, he's not looking at things objectively right now. He's looking at things subjectively. And, you know, at, and at this point, the climax really starts to get into, I think, the real, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it really reaches a crescendo at this point where Joe draws on orange and white draws on Joe and Eddie draws on white. You see in these, you know, you see this so often in movies and in TV shows, but it's really, really brilliantly done here how, how Tarantino films this. Uh, anybody that has not seen the movie that, you know, maybe we've piqued your interest by uh, uh, by running down the, uh, the synopsis yep. here, but uh, definitely. And Mr. Pink is sitting in the background screaming that this isn't professional. <laughs> yep, exactly. And Buscemi, you took the words right out of my mouth and I love it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Better. No, you did. Honestly, honestly, Murph, you did it even better than I would have done it. That's exactly it. That's, you know, I, I would have tried to have been a little more, but you just got right to the point. You're like, he's sitting back there and saying, this is not professional. And it's true. <laughs> and anybody that's seen the movie will probably yep. think of that and they'll look at that scene and they'll go, oh my God, yep, that's exactly it. If you haven't, this really is an amazing uh, climax and just an amazing scene uh, yeah. that was shot. Um, when the everybody starts Mexican shooting, standoff. of course... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Very, very well said. And, you know, everybody opens fire and they start shooting. And obviously Joe and Eddie uh, are both end up dead as a result of this. Uh, White is pretty badly wounded. And Orange is essentially mortally wounded at this point. You know, with with the gunshot he's already, uh, you know, sustained. He is now... um, he is now mortally wounded and he's, he's ready to essentially take his last breath and white is pretty seriously injured. Uh, Mr. Pink, he hid to avoid the shootout. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he pretty much did the smartest thing that anybody could do. He takes the diamonds and he gets the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> That's it. So, you know, so Buscemi ends up being, you know, he really, uh, Mr. Pink ends up being the, uh, the, the smart guy in the whole thing. He looks to be passive and a pacifist, weak or whatever, but he's the one that grabs the diamonds and heads the hell out. And in another brilliant way in which this uh, film all comes together, you hear police sirens outside. Uh, White is cradling his friend Orange in his arms, and Orange finally reveals to him that he is, in fact, the informant. He is, in fact, a detective, and he's a police officer. And White is legitimately devastated by this. And he really apologizes. He apologizes for being the cop. Yeah, he does. He does. Yep, he does. And he apologizes to his friend, which you see. Orange is not necessarily just in this as he took a liking to White as well. It's not just all White you know, respected him and loved him as a friend. And, you know, this guy's just a cop and that's it. There really was a deep connection between these two guys. And, really uh, you know, White's obviously devastated. He's, he's sobbing in frustration and just, he looks, he's hurt. He's disappointed. He's, he's just, you know, angry at himself, angry at orange, but there's so much that that's going on in Harvey Keitel and really brilliant, brilliantly acted here. Um, and, 
he points his gun at Orange's head, and the police can be heard right outside. You know they're about to bust in any minute, uh, and they come in. They raid the white the warehouse, and I love the camera work here. I really and truly love the camera work here. Some of the more yeah. brilliant camera work in the movie that you see right here with a close-up on, on Keitel's face, and just the way he acts, this is absolutely brilliant. And you can hear the policeman demanding that he drop his gun. Um, you know, he refuses he shoots orange and you can hear the police opening fire on white and screen goes black (laughs) and you know in in a page that you know maybe could have helped to influence the fade to black ending of a certain tv show on hbo which we will (laughs) i was just thinking Uh, that a lot of people seem to think that they got that from this movie, yeah. that fade to black where it just kind of leaves you to, you know, think about what you see so many movies do that. I mean, geez, it started with Butch and Sundance way back in the day yeah. where, you know, you end on a, on a pause and you let people draw their own conclusions. Uh, that movie, this movie to me uh, was so far ahead of its time. Even in 1992, I think it was so far ahead of its time because right. of the symbolism and the, uh, the way in which they used violence and cutaways and language and just, you know, real, just dialogue uh, between villainous characters to advance the plot line. Not something you saw a whole lot of beforehand, something you do see a lot of now, uh, more so I think in TV than in movies, but uh, yeah. that essentially ends Reservoir well, TV Dogs, has changed and it ends so it on much. a note. You know, yeah, and, and, it really, and really you has. Really, you, you, you see more cinematic television than, than we did in the past, and, and when you go to the movies, you see things like, you know, Avengers. You know, that's where people spend their money now and people spend their money in different ways. And they I'm not sure. Well, this this movie didn't make a lot of money at at the box office to begin with. But, um, you know, it really found its following when it when it hit um, uh, see at home when it when it hit when it hit video. Uh, Yes, for you younger people out there, video and. and it, it's changed, and and but no, you're right. It, it was it was well well ahead of its time, and it, it set the 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 tone for so many other television movies, television shows, and and other movies that have have come after it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, really, I think just a, um, a you know, I think this is my favorite Tarantino film. Uh, and I think you you said yep. that uh, you know originally as well, and that's saying something considering the uh, uh, the you know just the the, the catalog that he's uh, you know been able to put out, whether it be Kill Bills or whether it be uh, Pulp Fiction or whether it be Django Unchained. There's, there's so many you know movies that you could point to as being a, a Tarantino masterpiece. This is still my favorite, and I think the reason for that is just the way the characters were developed, the way this built yep. plot line came together, and. To me, it's just, I think the cinematography in this film was absolutely brilliant. People will point to Pulp Fiction all day long about the cinematography, and it does have some of the best, you know, out there in its genre. But I really think this film set the table for that. And that's why I think it's my favorite, because I think it was the originator. I think Pulp Fiction took what this film did and maybe even enhanced it a little bit. If you want to Mm -hmm. make the, the argument that Pulp Fiction is the better film, I certainly can't argue with that, but this is my favorite. And this is the reason why I think it was because of the attention to every detail that Tarantino put into it. Um, 
just to me a brilliant film and this was one that I was really looking forward to uh, chronicling and uh, I think we uh, we got back into the saddle my friend uh, yeah you know, chronicling a really really good one here they, we really did um, you could tell that this was the um, this was the screenplay and this was the movie that Tarantino bled for his entire life um, yeah. there's an old saying that you have in the in the music industry and it translates to films uh, also that you have your entire life to make your first movie and then they give you two years right. to make your second and they do that with, <laughs> with um, you know and they, they expect better um, it, it, it to me it doesn't get better than this there's a story about how Tarantino uh, was working on this script with Harvey Keitel at Harvey Keitel's house and Keitel is reading the script and he's like, wow, did you grow up with tough guys? This is, this is a great script. You know, what, what kind of life did you lead growing up? And, and Tarantino said, no, nah, I didn't grow up with tough guys. I just watched movies. And yeah. it, was, it, it was a complete homage to his entire movie loving life. And he brought it all together in this script and in this movie. And um, no matter what he's done since or what he will do in in the future, and I am a really big Tarantino fan. I go and see all of his movies when they're released in the in the theaters. And um, I have yet to not like one. Um, this and then Jackie Brown are my two favorites. And but but yeah. this one was was is just far and ahead. There's there's Reservoir Dogs, and then there's there's three feet. Um, below it, three rungs below it on the ladder, and then there's Jackie Brown after it. Um, it, yeah. it. It's fantastic. It sets up his entire career and who he is. I talked about he is the quintessential L.A. Uh, director, the the man who grew up in L.A., the man who loves L.A. and um, wants to show you uh, a side of L.A. that that you might not have seen because maybe you didn't see White Heat when you were freaking eight years old or you didn't, you know, yep. it, 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 it's it's fantastic. If you have not seen this movie, um, we're sorry if we, we, you know, spoiled anything for you, but I don't think we did. Um, I, I think it just goes to show you that if you haven't seen a film and you listen to a show like ours, it, it, it's it opens up a door for you and that's what we're here for not just to talk about old movies that we've seen and we love but to maybe show you something that you haven't you got anything else on this one bud no i think that uh you know you summed it up uh pretty nicely uh the thing that always sticks out to me about reservoir dogs and knowing some of the background uh that i knew about this movie going in when i knew we were going to chronicle this is uh finding out exactly how limited of a budget Tarantino yeah. made this movie on and you know I mean you take a look they wore their own clothes uh these guys set nope. their own wardrobe there wasn't a wardrobe on this film uh the clothes that you saw were clothes out of their closet uh Steve mm -hmm. Buscemi wore his own he was supposed to wear suit pants in this movie he didn't have a pair of suit pants and he wore black jeans so that's why you see him in black jeans in this movie uh the Coupe de Ville the uh, the Cadillac that uh, uh Michael Madsen drives in this movie that's his car yeah, his uh, they car. didn't have the budget. That's his car. They did. They had. They, uh, they didn't yep. have the budget to get him a Cadillac, and he had one, and he volunteered to use it, and they did that. So, you know, these were. The, the, this was a a movie that was really there was so much set up that could have made this a failure, uh, but they made it a, a resounding success, and they did that with great casting, great directing, and everybody right. buying into what 
these guys really wanted to do and the story they wanted to tell. So, um, again, I think we, uh, you know, I hope that if you haven't seen the movie and you've listened to the podcast, uh, definitely we hope that it's uh, given you the desire to actually want to see what we've described. Uh, we hope that we've described it in a good fashion. Uh, if you have seen the movie, I hope we hit all of your, uh, you know, uh, thoughts and, and uh, feelings on the movie. But be sure when you see this uh, tweeted out on social media uh, to uh, let us know if we've missed any type of symbolism or missed any type of anecdote or if you think that we could have explained things a little bit better. Uh, we're always trying to improve here at the Shade Biffy Mob Pod. So definitely right. keep us, uh, you know, in uh, um, in mind. And we appreciate everyone who listens to these. Uh, we hope that, uh, you know, you've enjoyed this one. And we can't wait to come back and chronicle one more. That's it, folks. And if you have any ideas for any films that you want us to, to hit on, please send that to us, too. You, you know both of us. You know where to find us. Um, obviously, you follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at Team Earth 207 and go ahead and give, shout yours out there, bud. Uh, I am uh, at M-D-A-B-A-T-E-F-P-C. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm also available on Facebook, Instagram, uh, uh, very similar uh, handles there as well. Uh, but Twitter is primarily how we use uh, the vehicle to be able to push this out. So follow us both and uh, be sure to listen to us on FPC Radio Live. Um, and there will also be playbacks uh, and links that will be available as well. So you can listen to it at your own convenience. So. Uh, Murph, it's always a pleasure to share the microphone with you, buddy. I love going is, through these man. movies with you. Uh, the two of us have a passion for this genre, and we hope it, it's conveyed adequately uh, when we talk about it. And uh, we're looking forward to the next one. So keep your eye out on Twitter, and we'll we'll drop some uh, teasers as to what that might be. That's it. And take care, everybody. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, Shay's Bippy is closed. <laughs>